NBA on NBC. The 1990s. What up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to Hot Take, the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not that you're going to call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're not just talking about the Hall of Fame. We will. We will get there. We always get there. But today, we're actually doing something a little different, uh, kind of like an Oprah book club type thing. I have Pedro Mora coming on the podcast. Pedro is a national baseball writer for Fox Sports News and formerly The Athletic. And he's coming on to talk about his new book, How to Beat a Broken Game, The Rise of the Dodgers in a League on the Brink. And and this book is about how the Dodgers have built up their roster to be the juggernaut they are today, how uh, baseball has changed for maybe the worse in terms of you know, how data drives all decisions, whether it be not just roster decisions now, but also how players play. Um, is that good or bad for baseball? The rules of baseball, how baseball is becoming kind of unpopular and maybe how to fix it, um, as well as going in depth on the Dodgers of the last five to six years, um, the Andrew Friedman year of how good they are, how they've accumulated all this talent, how do they have some of the best players in the majors right now and also the best farm system and and, 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 and covers a whole lot more. It's a great book. Um, I, I read it very quickly and, and we're going to go through you know, why Pedro wrote it, um, the kind of main points of the book, and then how it applies to maybe some of the rule changes that came out of the lockout that Thank God ended and we have baseball back. So really fun show talk or talking about that book. And then Pedro and I, of course, are going to hit some Hall of Fame topics like how many players on the 2022 Dodgers roster do we think will end up in Cooperstown, as well as, you know, who's better, Kershaw, Koufax, things like that. So very fun podcast, a little different, but I think you're all like it. So with kind of what we're going to get to out of the way, let's bring on Pedro. All right, so I'd like to welcome to the podcast today national baseball writer for Fox Sports and author of a new book titled How to Beat a Broken Game, The Rise of the Dodgers in a League on the Brink, Pedro Mora. Pedro, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to this. Of course. So we are recording. It is April 6th. Opening day for baseball is tomorrow. My Chicago Cubs are playing. I will be there. It will be 40 degrees. I will be in a jacket. The Dodgers play on Friday, but it is good, Pedro, to have baseball back. And that lockout not really ruining our summers here. I got to say, though, I was a little concerned. I thought we might have to wait till June or July for baseball. What were your thoughts? Are you surprised that we have baseball already? Absolutely, I'm surprised. Um, I was sounds like somewhat similar to you I was uh very much prepared for this to not happen until July um so it came as a significant surprise to me uh when it did um you know I think there were a lot of indications that even even on the afternoon of the vote on that Thursday that that it was going to get rejected by the players and this was going to keep going and you know if they they rejected that day I'm not sure when you know I'm not sure we'd have you know an agreement by now and so it happened um very suddenly and sort of unsuspectingly, I guess you could say. And it, um, I'm not complaining about it. You know, it's nice to have some certainty in my schedule again as a baseball writer. You know, I, people would ask like, hey, what are you going to be doing in eight, you know, on April 12th? And I'd be like, I have 
you know, that could be opening day. Um, I could, I could be in spring training. I really have, I have no idea. Um, and so I, I, I like the idea that like, you know, now I know when, you know, in LA, when the teams are playing, which, which team is visiting Los Angeles and, and all in Anaheim and all that. So it's nice. Um, I'm getting used to this and, um, can't say I, I would have predicted it. I think, you know, if you'd asked me if opening day would have been on April 7th, um, you know, at any point all off season, I would have said you were, you, you were wrong. Yeah, it was not looking good. I was prepared for a at least spring of no baseball and, and with no World Cup this summer. It's not till Thanksgiving winter now. I was really going to be uh, pretty bored. So excited it's happening again. Uh, April baseball in Chicago isn't the best, but still I, I live right outside the ballpark. So it's a easy walk over for me and my neighborhood becomes very fun when baseball's here. So it being back is exciting for me. But let's talk a little bit about your book before we talk about maybe some of the, the new rules, um, what you think actually came from that agreement. Do you think the players actually got a better deal this time around? But I want to talk about the book first because it just came out March 29th um, as I was talking to you before we started recording here. And I actually tweeted uh, a few weeks ago, you know, I, I read your book on my flight to Vegas the way there. Um, and then on the way back, and I told you I, I was on the red eye back from Vegas. It's it's the worst flight in America, Vegas to Chicago. <laughs> Your book, though, made it, it better, and I completed it about half an hour before we landed, um, which was nice, and it got me really excited about baseball. Pedro, I got to ask, so your book, you know, it covers the Dodgers, their rise into this kind of powerhouse now, this juggernaut, which they will be, I think, heavily favored for the World Series this year again. Um, it was about that. It was about baseball. Is it dying? What's the state of baseball today? How the Dodgers are exploiting some things in baseball today. It covers a lot of ground. Again, it got me very excited. I'm not a Dodgers fan. Got me very excited for baseball, though. What inspired you to write this book, though? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know. You know, people have been asking that a little bit, and I, I, I'm not sure I ever conceptualized it as like, you know, one day feeling inspired to do this. It was more like, you know, I've devoted my career post-college to covering baseball, you know, grew up a, a fan of the Dodgers and a massive fan of baseball. And, have, you know, I've spent now a decade in this industry and, um, you know, I've been absorbing and, you know, changing my opinions on things as, as, as the years go by. And at, basically after the Dodgers won the World Series, you know, the week after the Dodgers won the World Series in October 2020, um, you know, at a time when we had a lot of free time in our lives, I, um, I, it was uh, suggested to me by a friend, like, you know, hey, you know, someone might want to read a book about this, someone might want to buy a book about this. And so I started talking to agents and publishers and it, and it, and it emerged out of that. So it was, um, it was really for me, like an opportunity to, to, to collect everything that I've observed, learned, reported, you know, relationships I've made in the, in the, in the industry over those years and, and sort of collate them into one, um, you know, thesis-ish thing, you could say, you know, and, 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 and sort of make the case and, and, and leave the reporting out there for people to make, you know, make their own opinions, um, to form their own opinions. So I, I, I don't know, it's an, I, I'm not sure that I ever was like, you know, considered myself as like, oh, I, I you know, I, I'm inspired by this. It was more like this opportunity was in front of me. I like to write, I like to report, uh, I like to learn through the reporting process. And and, you know, soon, soon after that, I was on that journey and, um, you know, and, and, and it kind of uh, it did it all basically last year. And, and it's been exciting to see it come out this year. Yeah. And, and, you know, the book, as I said, you go individually into different Dodgers players, you talk about the game at whole, you talk about a lot about the front office of the Dodgers, which I found very interesting, the scouting departments, how they blend 
data in with, um, you know, an old school scouts viewpoint of, of how you actually look at players, which I think is the perfect way to do it. It's the way you have to do it. And, you know, I, I had Theo Epstein here for a while. So I kind of, you know, got sold into all of that thinking there as well. If you though were giving your elevator pitch to someone 30, 30 second pitch on what are you actually going to get when you read this book? What are you learning? What are you finding about what would that elevator pitch be? What, what is this book actually about coming from you? Yeah, that's the book is about how the Dodgers, the behemoth of the current era in baseball, both looking back over the last seven years and looking forward to the next five to 10 years, how they've built this sustainable winner and at what cost they've done it at, both to the players, to the fans, uh, to the business overall, uh, and, and what their success says about the the path that baseball's on more broadly, uh, both over the last decade and over the next one, as change is necessary um, to continue to uh, to attract new fans because the game is you know is is fading on in its in terms of its television viewers, and so it's a broad it's both a broad and and um, narrowed look at uh, baseball's recent past and and you know projectable future. Yeah. So your book, like as I read it, I. And again, I, I hope you take this as a compliment, but, you know, it reminded me a bit of today's Moneyball, right? Like you, Moneyball, it was all about, you know, Billy Bean, what he was doing with the A's. Um, everyone, if you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie probably. You In, in, in some way, you know what that is. And the common person, even non-baseball fans know what that is. Brad Pitt played Billy Bean. You know who Brad Pitt is. So I feel like this is almost kind of a, like the next step from there, because that was all about, you know, how are we looking at players today using data? And the A's were some of the first, you know, one of the first teams to do that and do it well. And after that book came out, I feel like almost every team over the next several years started to co copy some of the things that, you know, the A's were doing. And now everyone has a data department before no one did. Everyone uses math now to do everything before no one did. In your book, you talk a lot about some of the things the Dodgers are doing because now you know, right? It's not just applying data to the roster build. Now it's individual players using data to enhance how they pitch or how they bat, et cetera. Are the Dodgers way ahead of the curve like the A's were back then? Or are there many teams today doing similar things the Dodgers are doing? The Dodgers are maybe just doing a little more, doing it a little better. Um, That's a good question. I, I think... The Dodgers were ahead of the curve. Yes. I, you know, if you look at, you know, 2015, 2016, the player development eras, I kind of zero in on in the book a little bit. At that time, they were, you know, far ahead of the curve. Since then, I think several teams have, have you know, understood how far they were behind and, and you know, dedicated resources to, to trying to catch up, you know, and it, it, of course, a natural thing in sports, and we see this in every major sport in, in America, and I think elsewhere, is that when it, when a team succeeds, it's executives, it's decision makers get recruited, you know, it's, it's secondary decision makers and executives get, get recruited to go elsewhere and, you know, then start to replicate that there. And we're seeing that, you know, a perfect example of that is in San Francisco, where Fahan Zaidi, the Dodger former general manager, their number two, and Gabe Kapler, their former player development director, so essentially the man in charge of the farm system, um, is now their manager, and Zaidi is their GM. So, you know, predictably, that organization is being run in, in, in similar ways. Uh, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of shared ideology uh, that you that you can witness within those rosters. And when they face each other in the division series last year, it was very obvious the degree to which they've thought the same way and, and you know even in, they claim the same players on waivers 
you know, they, they, they find success with the same players. It's, it's very much a, um, this is what happens. This is how other teams catch up, but the Dodgers, you know, other teams have started to catch up, but the Dodgers have still retained the advantage. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of prognostication systems this off season have rated the Dodgers farm system among the best in baseball, some number one overall, which is pretty remarkable considering that they haven't drafted in the top half of the first round um, for, for many, many years now. In fact, the last time they did, they drafted, I believe the last time they drafted in the top 15 was in 2006 when they drafted oh, wow. a man we'll talk about, you know, soon, I'm sure Clayton Kershaw. Uh, and, and so they've done this, you know, other teams are, the rebuilding teams are taking the, you know, first five, you know, having the first five or 10 picks in the draft pretty consistently and not able to get the same sort of top talents the Dodgers are finding 25th overall. And that's um, a real testament to their scouting, to their development, to their executives, to do everything in the organization. And so you asked um, if, if they were as far ahead, if they're far, as far ahead as like the A's were in the O2 uh, season. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I would agree that I'm not sure that I would say that the, that the A's were doing, I certainly accept that Moneyball and its publication changed the course of, of baseball executive them, you know, in this, in the way that, and I, I think I say this to some extent in the book, the way that owners became aware of it, it became popular. It became yep. known to the wider public that teams were being run in this way. And when that happened, you know, essentially very quickly, every executive needed to be versed in this, you know, and it, in a couple of years, it was half the executives in five years, it was, you know, three quarters. And in, in seven or eight years, it was every single one. So, but within the game, I don't know, you know, if you looked at the Cleveland organization at that time, I'm not sure that the A's were, you know, dramatically far ahead of, of what Cleveland was doing. You know, I think we need to rehash that a little bit more. So it's, it's interesting, like how far ahead are you really, you know, and, and do you just attract attention because the payroll is really low? Um, yeah. And, and the other thing about those, you know, I think maybe the in, most interesting comparison to me about that team, you know, two decades on is Moneyball. And the A's of that or, of, of that era, you know, they paid almost no attention to player development in the mm -hmm. sense that, like, I mean, how much of Moneyball, the book or the movie, is about working with minor leaguers and improving them along the way? You know, it's absolutely not a not a relevant thing. It's almost like they they treat the draft as like you pick these players, and if you do a good job picking them, they're going to be good major leaguers. And there's nothing in between drafting them and having them like uh, break out at the major league level. Whereas the Dodgers. Have, have revealed very clearly to the general public, I think even, that that there's a lot of control you have along the way, you know, at every step along the way. And it's not just, the, the draft is not the end of the process, or the, it, it's very much the beginning. And so I think in that, they were ahead of the curve, and I think teams have, have started to, um, to catch up, but I still think, you know, as evidenced by their farm system ranking, considering their, you know, their, their lesser opportunities, they've, they're still ahead to some extent. Do you think, Pedro, that your your book coming out now, is it exposing anything? Do you think that's not well-known among most Major League Baseball teams? Or do you think you're exposing some of the things the Dodgers are doing today that even more teams will now look to copy? Is an I, owner going to go to – is an owner is an owner from – I'm trying to – I don't want to throw any team under the bus, but let's say a team that has terrible player development, not drafting well. They just seem really behind. Is one of those owners picking up your book and going to their front office and be like, we need to do this? I, 
I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be honored if that were the case to an extent. You know, I think also um, I, I, my argument that I lay out is that you, I, if the owner's reading it, I hope they're taking away other things besides just how to, you know, how to exploit player development. I hope I hope they're being convinced that they should stop exploiting their minor leaguers so much. I hope, they, yep. I hope they're being convinced of plenty of other things. Um, I'm honored that anyone chooses to read it. I, 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 you know, I think it'd be incredibly presumptuous of me, you know, eight days after publication to say like, this is going to change the game. I, I don't, I don't think that. Um, I, I think that, you know, plus I think that people with the, the, the average knowledge base of somebody within the game is a lot higher than someone like me. Uh, and so, you know, I, I essentially spent the year reporting this and have spent my career in journalism reporting this to try to get myself up to that level, but I'm still, you know, still in pursuit of that. I'm not an insular organization person i don't have the background of development that these people have i've never sat in on coaching meetings you know i i, I have not coached a player any you know the even an owner is going to have access to these things to things that i don't obviously do not have so i i don't know i mean i i, I hope that it you know it, it better informs you know fans of the game and maybe even casual observers of the game in terms of what they're watching why what they're watching has changed over the years i'd like to think that that will happen um, what, whether it'll change the game from the inside, I think that'd be, uh, I'd be surprised, um, but I, and also honored if, you know, if, uh, if, if somehow, um, you know, Paul Dolan, the Cleveland owner is photographed of, uh, reading the book, you know, I'd be, I'd be very surprised for sure. Uh, so, so one of my favorite parts of the book, and it's just, you know, I know <clears throat> my Chicago teams frontwards and backwards, and I have a good grasp on all the teams generally, most of the players in the league, but at the same time, I, I love anytime I come across, I, I do still read magazines from time to time, but an athletic article where I know you used to work and any article where deep dives a profile on a certain player, I love it. Cause I feel like anytime I learn more about a player besides the surface level stuff, I, I, I just love to hear about them and I become a fan of them. The reason I really liked your book outside of, you know, the different cases you made for, change that should happen, you know, what's going on with baseball. That is, you did spend several chapters deep diving certain players and exec, executive figures on the Dodgers. Um, really enjoyed all of that. Enjoyed learning how Walker Buehler seems to be an asshole. I'm like all in on that. That was very enjoyable to me. He sounds so cocky. And I, I never thought of him like that. I guess I just, I knew how good of a pitcher he was. He was on my fantasy team a couple of years ago. I was like, he is killing it. I didn't know that was his personality. And then I talked to my fiance. She's like, she's from Louisville. And she's like, oh, I knew that. She's like, I knew he was from Kentucky. And I knew all about all that stuff. So I'm looking at him now from a different lens. But I enjoyed all of those deep dives. Who did you enjoy kind of digging into the most? Or which chapter do you have the most fun writing about? Um, that's a good question. Uh I, you know, probably Bueller. Um, I think he's a really interesting figure. I think, you know, I, I, I've heard, you know, people describe him as an asshole and, you know, he's, he, he's accepted that at times in his past. I think it's, a, it's, I would say it's a little more, I mean, not, you know, I think you were, you know, Joe joking to an extent, but I think yeah. it's a little more nuanced than that. Right. He's, you know, he's, he, um, he, he's reasonably self-aware. And I think the development of that sort of player is, is, is in, in person is really interesting to me. You know, this is a, a guy who did not grow, you know, he grew up essentially living with a, with a single mom mm -hmm. um, who had very little baseball background and yet became a, you know, a, a dominant major league starter. And like, that's just not the way the sport has typically gone, right? This is very much a father-son game. Uh, and I, I, you know, 
as someone who didn't learn the game from my dad either, I really relate to, to that, like that, that you kind of learn it on your own through other figures that emerge through television, through, you know, videotapes, through whatever. And you, and you build that. And, you know, there's the added element of, you know, he's a small fellow. I mean, like his body type is not that different from mine. And, um, you know, he's obviously in, in, in pretty phenomenal shape and is muscle bound. Uh, but he is not the sort of, um, he's, he's, he's not the sort of player that has typically emerged as a, um, you know, as a, as a 200 inning elite starter. And so sort of digging into that, explaining how it happened, explaining that his mom's a lawyer, that he grew up around adults and he loves to argue and be around adults, people older than him all the time. I think it, it I think it provides a, you know, a really wide picture of who this guy is that hopefully informs people, you know, he's going to be a force in baseball, I think mm -hmm. for the next decade-ish and I think it, hopefully it informs people a little more of their of their um you know when they watch him you know how this man came to be yeah no I, I really enjoy that I'll be watching him close and like him I think the chapter starts he's like at the racetrack with his mom and he you know like he's telling her who to yeah. bet on and all that I just I love that whole story so really enjoy that and the deep dives yeah, you probably um, can relate to that with the Louisville. Uh, I, I, yeah. My, yeah. she is a degenerate gambler, and I think it comes from <laughs> just being in Louisville um, and being around horses growing up. But uh, you know, at the beginning, Pedro, we kind of talked right about the the lockout and how it's over, and there's changes. What are your thoughts on kind of the the result of the end of the lockout, do you think it benefits the Dodgers the way they do things? Does it hurt them? What's your overall kind of viewpoint of, okay, here are the new terms here. Are maybe the new rule changes coming down the line. What are, you, what are your just thoughts on what ended up happening? Um, I think it ended up being a, um, a very mild win for the players. Um, you know, and very mild is obviously quite a, um, you know, milk toast descriptor, but a win is still better than a loss. And I think they didn't get um, totally defeated in the, in these negotiations, which is a lot more than you can say for the last two. And they had a lot of ground to make up because of how badly they were beaten in the last two. Um, I think, you know, the, the introduction of a $50 million pre-arbitration pool that will, you know, uh, spread more money to young players is a real win for the players, especially since that pool did not exist in any form beforehand. Um, I think the in, in, increase of the minimum salary at the major league level from 570000 to 700000 will be a, a, a big win additionally for young players because, of course, these sound like big figures, but a lot of times, you're, you know, the average major league career, if you even get to the major leagues, which is, you know, a 10% proposition to begin with, is then you spend three, three to four years in the major leagues and you're talking about making a total of, you know, $2 million, which, of course, again, is a lot of money. But, you know, if that's the, the net result of, you know, 15, 20 years of career pushing or something like that, that's not, you know, that's, that's, that's not an absurd number and does not leave you in any way set up for life. And it leaves you often without a college degree at 35 or something like that and not being really ready for the next phase. So anything you can do to ensure that, that they're making money that's commensurate with how the sport is, is earning, um, I think that's great. Um, I, I think I would have liked to see the players push more for um, for anti tanking elements um, that would that would actually make the sport that would preserve the sports future in a in a, in a better way. Um, that that was not successful, you know, nothing really has changed in terms of the incentives that exist for teams to continue to tank and rebuild their rosters over the long term so they they, they can save money when they're bad and then push their resources to be, to when they're good. Um, there's a, a small draft lottery being introduced into baseball, but I don't think that's going to make any sort of massive change in the, um, the service time manipulation 
changes are might actually end up hurting the game rather than improving it. So it's it was a small win. Um, long story short, I think they could have gone worse. Um, it potentially, potentially, if the players had held out for longer, they could have gotten more. But then they also would have it would have come at a cost to the current season, which would have both been at a cost to their salaries. You know, because they would have no probably no longer been paid for the entire season, and would have come at a cost of fan discontent um, with the sport. And so I think you can, you know, you can certainly make an argument, a reasonable argument that they that they took the best deal ultimately that was going to be available to them when they did. And by at least holding out to when they did, they got a significantly better deal than was available to them a week, 14, 21 days earlier. And so overall, you know, it's okay. I, I don't think, you know, it's not, it's not going to change the 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 massive issues facing the sport long term, which is that the games are getting longer, slower. Um, both in terms of in, in terms of length and pace of play, and that fewer fans are watching, but um, it set the groundwork for at least the players to be better compensated and less exploited by the um, by the billionaires who 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 own their contracts. Yeah, and among the you know games are going longer, boring. People are losing interest. You know, the next generation might not be baseball fans. All that stuff. If you had executive powers and you could just make one change today and that you think would make the biggest impact on making the game more exciting or, you know, people would be more interested in it, what would that change be? Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, my, my cop-out answer is I would I would uh, argue for more changes because one isn't <laughs> enough. Um, with my one, I would, I would say I need five. Um, so I, I I don't know I think I'm torn between I think you know I think I think the restricting or banning the defensive shift will will help the sport but I think yep. if you make that an ice if you do that in isolation I don't think that's going to have a significant enough change I think that needs to be done as part of a series of changes that incentivize players to put the ball into play and not swing the defenses um, I think because there there are some studies that don't seem to indicate that banning the shift alone would help the sport and I understand why that is because it's it, you need to have it be in a total package of things that really um entice players to not uh to to reduce their their the power within their swings and go instead to put the ball in play and reward them more for for putting the ball in play um if you do that and then you force pitchers to to you know throw with a little less intensity and, and trying to less strike out guys and walk guys then i think that could also help the sport so something like that i that i would favor is some sort of pitcher restriction on rosters um you know i've thrown out the number 10 that's probably low and you know anything any number here the players union would protest against but i think that if you if you incentivize pitchers to to last deeper into games and teams by by saying you know you you can only have 10 guys on your roster so you can no longer throw at 100 percent effort for 100 pitches you know let's rather throw at 80 percent effort for 120 pitches something like that i think that'd be good for the sport um i think that'd be really good for the sport so anything to incentivize basically more uh more contact fewer strikeouts fewer walks and and fewer homers yeah so a, a lot that would have to be changed and, and again i i'm a big eliminating the shift might help a bit here but again i think you kind of just listed a laundry list of things that could change maybe over time gradually these changes will happen i i think eventually <laughs> I feel like they should, the owners and everyone should feel like they're being forced into making some of these changes sooner rather than later. I don't think they think that. I think at some point they will realize that, but that, that's a whole different conversation. Um, sticking with the Dodgers though. So gosh, I'm looking at this right now and I wish my cubbies could have had this success with the run I thought we we're going to have. So 
I believe last six years, they've made the National League Championship five of the last six years, three World Series. They won it all in 2020. You said uh, maybe 20 minutes ago, you know, they also have the best, they have the best farm system somehow at the same time while they have one of the more talented rosters I've ever seen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Pedro, my question for you is a, kind of an impossible question because a million things can happen here, but how long are the Dodgers going to be in this kind of, it's not a dynasty because they've only won a World Series, but how long are they going to sustain this success until a rebuild will be needed? Are they set for the next decade here? When will this actually <laughs> flame out? How much longer will they keep doing this? It's a great question. You know, I essentially asked this to the dozens of people while reporting this book. Um, and I never heard of, you know, no one, no one really knows, honestly. Um, I can't say I heard a hard concrete number from anyone like uh, in terms of this, especially not this decade. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to foresee. And I think that's what's so uh, wild and dangerous almost about what they've accomplished is that there's no end in sight. And we haven't really seen many analogs for this sort of success in the modern era of professional sport that, you know, that, that it lasts for, you know, at least a decade, which is at this point, I don't, you know, no one thinks that they're going to stop winning in the next few seasons, which means that this, you know, the Andrew Freeman era will have gone a decade of, of sustained success, you know, of 90 plus win seasons and, and, and championship possibilities every year. And that's an incredible achievement in feet. It really is. You know, I think they're, um, they're, Obviously, their payroll and the ability to, to spend that they have plays a significant role in this. You know, I've been reminded in promoting this book and having it be out there. You know, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, if you if you write a tweet that says, you know, the book is at, is out and it's called How to Beat a Broken Game, people tend to reply with just money bags or or dollars, as if like the only thing that you know enables you to have to beat a broken game is to spend. But, you know, like, I mean, yes, money helps, obviously. Um, we live in a capitalist society that, that, I mean, money helps with everything. But uh, but it's a lot more than that, right? And um, so the thing with the Dodgers is the money isn't going away. There's no reason to think the money's going away. And there's no reason right now to think the other factors are going away either. Um, so uh, I, at this point, I don't know. I mean, I, I think more than, I, you know, I'd, I'd take over five years before they before they're not good again. And I'm not sure that they'll ever necessarily need to really rebuild uh, and, and take the three-year cycle off. I, I, I don't know. I mean, theoretically, you can, um, you can keep finding ways to repurpose your, um, your prospects into, into pa- to patch players when you need them at the, at the highest level, you know, and they, they've done that really well. With, I mean, if you think about all the, all the stars they've acquired by trade over the last four years and still kept the number one farm system, I mean, it's crazy. Manny Machado, you Darvish, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner. I mean, these, this is, um, these are all players they've acquired by trade and uh, they've yet retained sufficient prospects to continue to stay at the top. So I, it's, I, 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 don't, I don't have a good answer for you. No one does. I, I, think, I think it's really interesting to sit here, you know, on April 6, 2022 and say like, no, they might be good for the rest of this decade. You know, but they really might. They really, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you you're wrong if you said that. Yeah. So Pedro, before we get out of here, I want to ask you a few questions that kind of relate to Cooperstown because this podcast in general, we really do focus on the baseball hall of fame, the football hall of fame, basketball hall of fame. So we talk about former players, current players, you know, how we can predict in the future. Um, And when I look at this Dodgers lineup, I mean, (laughs) there's four people on the lineup this year that, that have an MVP award um, during their career, which, 
I don't know if that's a record, but it's got to be near a record. Um, the 2022 roster, if you were to look at today, how many players would you guess that, let's say, 30 years from now, we're, we're at Cooperstown, we're walking around. How many players on this roster today do you predict will be in Cooperstown if we are walking around it in, say, 30 years? Um, it's a good question. I, I, you know, I, I've been thinking about it a little bit, but first of all, I wanted to get to what you said about the MVPs because I did research this when they acquired. Oh, good. And I, I haven't done that. So tell me, um, <laughs> this is the third time in MLB history and the first time in 40 years that an MLB team will begin a season with four former MVPs on its roster. So what, what do you have? Do you have, by chance have the teams? Is this, are we talking way back when, or is there a recent? Uh, it was 40 years. I, I mean, uh, let me think. Um, I think I know this, but I don't want to. Sorry to put you on the spot. I, I didn't, no, I, I couldn't. 82 Cardinals. Um, if I remember correctly, I'm they, looking it up right now. They would have had Keith Hernandez. They would have had, I'm trying to think. Who else? Let me, I, I will get you this answer as we speak. I think <laughs> the interesting thing about the Dodgers, they have a lot of players with Hall of Fame chances, but not Hall of Fame locks. You know, they really only have one. Hall of Fame lock. I mean, I suppose that's not like, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not bad for, you know, that's not abnormal by any means, but, it, no. you know, it, it, but you'd almost like, I, I, when, when I first thought of it, I was like, oh, maybe they have more, but I mean, the only true lock on their, um, on their roster is Clayton Kershaw. Um, you know, after that, you get a, a lot of guys with really good chances, I think. Um, let's, I mean, we can, we can go down the list. I mean, Mookie Betts is on that path. Yep. Um, Freddie Freeman has a chance. Uh, Craig Kimbrell has a chance, you know, in a sort of different category because of the closer success, but not a, as a, in terms of accumulation. Um, and then the other players who are, you know, this is much more projection based that have a chance, I would say, are Walker Bueller, who we talked about. Yep. Um, although that's, you know, that that's that that a lot needs to happen in order for that to happen. Uh, Trey Turner, even I think, although that's maybe no. a little bit of a stretch. No, you think it's no, possible? no, no. I, I think I mean, I mean, so I I like listed here. So Clayne Kershaw, of course is number one. I'm going to ask you a bigger question in a second about him. And maybe it's an easy question. I'm going to ask you a bigger question about him in a second, but Clint Kershaw is a no brainer. First ballot Mookie Betts in eight years already has a 50 war, which is borderline hall of fame compared to a lot of players we talk about today. As long as Mookie Betts doesn't get hit by a bus or something tragic doesn't happen. You're right. He's not guaranteed. If he retired today, he wouldn't be in, but he's in like, he plays four more years at this level. And even if he has an Andrew Jones fall off, which we've seen before players hit age 30 and they just completely fall off a cliff. If he has that, um, I mean, he's one of the best players I've seen in my life. Um, so I think he's very close. He's not, you're right. He's not a guaranteed in, but I, I would assume he gets in again, unless something tragic happens. Freddie Freeman, he's got the MVP, but first basemen have a very tough time getting the Hall of Fame. They almost have like a, a unfair advantage because especially today's voters, a lot of them will look at war and first baseman just don't get the defensive pickup that other positions get there. So Freddie would have to keep going and who knows if the Dodgers rat off a couple more world series and he's a big part of it, that could get him in Craig Kimbrell right now. He's the lowest ERA in history for a reliever. I don't know what the hell happened with the white Sox at the end of last year. If he can regain composure and even put together a few more good seasons, I think he has a really good chance. And as you were saying, like Trey Turner, that's a, that's completely up in the air. It can go, I mean, a lot has to happen to get him in, but I think Trey Turner and Walker Bueller and, and even, you know, 
I don't know what happened with Cody. Maybe you can tell me about that. But Cody, I thought now, I mean, he's got to turn it around here. But I think Cody, Trey, Walker, all could be in the conversation. But let me ask you this, Pedro. If you had to put money on just one of those guys, Turner, Bellinger, Bueller, one of them ends up in Cooperstown. Who would you put money on is probably the most likely. I, I don't know if any of them will. They might all not make it there. But if one were to, who would you put your money on? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I project Bueller to be the best player going forward, but that, you know, but he's 27, you know, turning 28 in, in three months and has put up 12 and a half more um, in his career. So that's, you know, that's a real uphill battle, right? Because he was drafted out of college because he had Tommy John. Uh, and, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I think the smart play is Turner, but I, I think it's probably, you know, it, I, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, Bellinger is, is I, I wrote him down with just a bunch of question marks because we really don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know. So what, can you tell me like what, what happened last year? What, what was that? He was still hurt, I suppose. And, um, still hurt. Okay. A lot. um and you know, he's, he's, he's been the sort of hitter who even within success has tinkered, you know, his memorable 2019 MVP season, people sometimes forget that toward, down the stretch there, he wasn't really that great anymore. Um, and come the playoffs, he really wasn't great at all. Uh, you know, he finished, um, he finished not particularly strong. And he, this is the sort of player who hasn't been very consistent in his major league career. You know, he's still only 26, right? That's the remarkable thing. Yep. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I believe in Walker Buehler's an ace. I think he is that, as that, is that guy. So I suppose, um, I suppose he's the smartest play, even though he, you know, to date is the farthest from it, right? Well, well, the farthest from it, but he, I, I believe that that potential is there. Yeah, I, I don't even want to answer that question because honestly, I have no idea. I'd probably pick Trey Turner just because I trust position players a little more than pitchers just because injuries can, you know, mess up the career no matter how talented they are. I think Bueller's the most talent there. And that's saying a lot because Turner is extremely talented. But if I had to put money, I'd probably go Turner just from the position aspect. Final question I want to ask you here, Pedro. And this might be just common knowledge among most Dodger fans or it might already be, you know, the torch has been passed. I don't have many Dodger fans in my life. I don't talk to too many Dodger media members, nothing against them. I just haven't had the chance to over, over my time here. But, you know, when I think of some of the best pitchers of all time, you know, Sandy Koufax to me is still this like almost Paul Bunyan type figure of, you know, he came in, he dominated, and then he retired at 30. And then we never really, you know, Never pitched again after that. But when he pitched, he was all time. Around the Dodgers organization, just around LA, is Kershaw looked upon as the best pitcher in Dodgers history today? Or is there very much a Koufax-Kershaw debate that does happen between the both in terms of who is the, the GOAT of LA pitching? Is it Kershaw? Is it Koufax? Is there people from different camps that kind of argue about this? Or is there no argument at all? Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't know that I've ever really heard this subject argued about. I think I, I think it's sort of one of those things where they're on, you know, the, the thought has been for a long time that Koufax had, couldn't really be judged on a normal scale because he retired because of the injuries at such an early age and didn't have an opportunity essentially to pitch in his 30s. But that his, um, you know, his, his, the way he ended his career will never be topped in, in baseball history. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think that stands, you know, when you look at the final 
four or five years of his career, um, you know, 1200 innings. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. In yeah. The final four seasons of his career, 1200 averaged uh, 290 innings this, this season with the 186 ERA. You know, we're never going to see that. I, I, I mean, obviously the innings won't ever see that again. No. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I think the other thing is that Kurt, Koufax remains, you know, an intermittent presence in Los Angeles. You know, he's occasionally at games. He occasionally shows up at spring training. He and Clayton Kershaw maintain a, a good friendship. Uh, and so I think that, um, I think they're just sort of viewed separately. Like there's not necessarily a competition because they're pitching, you know, more than a half century apart from each other. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't um, dug into it that much. I think that I think, you know, un unfortunately, there exists the possibility that, you know, Clayton Kershaw's career won't extend that much past, you know, the next year or two. And, um, you know, he just signed a one-year deal as a 34-year-old free agent. And so we, we might be looking at somebody who's, um, who's, who's, you know, not all the way like Koufax in terms of like his career, you know, just ending very abruptly. But, you know, he also might, you know, it doesn't, it does not look like at this point he's going to pitch until he's 40. I would probably guess against that. So it, yeah, it, they're, they're different, you know, they're just, they're so different, hard to compare different eras. Um, I believe that they were both at once the most dominant pitcher alive, you know, for, for, for a time, you know, Kershaw's window seems to have lasted about five or so years where he was that before some others took over. And I think that's, you know, about the case here for Koufax as well. If I forced you right now to pick one, who would you pick? Um, I can't actually force yeah. you because we're on a Zoom call and you're, <laughs> and you're over there. But I'd if probably, I force I, you to pick one, I, I guess um, I would pick Clayton Kershaw because I've seen him with my eyes. You know, sure. so it's um, I don't have a good sense for how dominant Sandy Kopax was, like as a you know, in terms of like you know, weekly starts, right? Like I just don't, you know, I, I'll never have that sense for it. And I've seen this dominance up close. So it's, it's almost like, you know, they're, they're sort of unfair sides, right? Like I'm comparing the best to try that sure. with somebody who I've learned about like an almanac from when I was a kid. So it's, um, it's sort of a, uh, it's just kind of unfair, right. In, in a sense. Yeah. Um, but, but they're both, um, they're both dominant in their own, in, in they were both dominant in their own way. And Clayton Kershaw, you know, still projects to be, a, you know, the, the number three starter for a, um, for a really good team this season. So, you know, and at 34, so we'll see how long that, you know, he's able to keep that sort of production alive. Yeah, we will see. Well, Pedro, um, appreciate you coming on today. Again, everyone, this new book is How to Be a Broken Game, The Rise of the Dodgers in a League on the Brink. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere you're going to get a book. You can go pick that up. I highly encourage you to. It is a great read. Pedro, before I get you out of here, anything else you want to plug? Uh, I, did, I mean, not a plug, but I did find out who the, uh, the 82 team Oh, was I forgot team. about that already. Please okay. tell the listeners yeah. before we get them out of here. So I, how about I give you the team and let's see how many of you can name. Oh, man. Okay, yeah. Put me on the spot. I put you on the spot plenty, so go for it. 1982 California Angels. That was the oh. last team that had four MVPs on it. What? Yeah. Um, was Reggie Jackson on there? Yes. That's okay. Um, my hands are up, so I'm not Googling anything. Oh, my gosh. Um, these are all um, – let's see. Uh, that is tough, they, man. They don't uh, – you, know, you don't associate a couple of these players with the Angels. You know, I, so. I mean, I don't associate Reggie Jackson with the Angels. Yeah. I just knew he played there in the early A's. I assume. Um, honestly, I don't know. Give me the give me the last three. I have no idea. Rod Carew. 
Oh yeah, okay. Fred Lynn. I would not have got that. And the late Don Baylor. Oh my, yeah. I mean, honestly, Rod Cruz, the only one I'm mad about, the other two would have never got. Wow. Yeah, they, they were pretty good squad. They, uh, how, did they, how did they do that year? I think they just, I just clicked away, but I think they won 93 games. So um, okay. not bad in, in that era. Um, yeah, good. Uh, they lost in the, uh, in the ALCS. Yeah, they went, they went 93 and 69, finished first. Okay. Another, uh, hey, a California team, right, right there. So we'll see if the Dodgers can beat that this year. I would assume they probably do get over 93 wins, but we will see. Um, again, though, Pedro, appreciate you coming on. Um, good luck yeah. with, with the, the book and everything. And um, look forward to a, a future book if there's a, a sequel down the line or some other route you go. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate your um, your time. Um, it was a pleasure. Yeah, look forward to talking again. All right. I want to thank Pedro again for coming on the podcast today. Before I get you all out of here, I do want to comment on the Kershaw Kofax question um, that I asked Pedro. So for me, I have a clear answer. I think Pedro, I, I kind of feel like I put him on the spot there. I have a clear answer here. I, I think so. Sandy Koufax still ranks ahead Clint Kershaw for Dodgers best Dodgers pitcher ever, at least in my, from my perspective. And, and here's why. So if you look at him, very similar guys, right? Both lefties for the Dodgers, both with a K to start their name, last name, both MVPs, both three-time Cy Young Award winners, um, both have five ERA titles. Very similar, right? The big thing for me that's the difference is the postseason play. Kershaw obviously has documented postseason woes where Koufax was an excellent postseason pitcher. He won three World Series with the Dodgers compared to Kershaw's one. And also, Koufax was a two-time World Series MVP. In Koufax's career, he had a 0.95 ERA across 57 innings. The worst ERA he ever had in a series was 1.50. He had 61 strikeouts in those 57 innings, um, walked 11. He was just dynamite. So for, for, for me, I look at that, right? And then I look at Kershaw, who I think most people that follow baseball know this is his only – I guess flaw in his candidacy, if there is one for the Hall of Fame, which again, I feel he will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But in the postseason, Kershaw has a career of 4.19 ERA, balloons up. Um, in the World Series, a 4.46 ERA over 38 innings, a 4.84 ERA in the National League Championship Series. It's, it's rough. And again, it's I, I've heard everything from, you know, he – He's pretty injured. He's worn down by the time the playoffs start and all of that and his velocity goes. And, but, but that's a glaring hole. And if I'm comparing Koufax, who could not have been much better in the playoffs compared to Kershaw, I, I give the edge to Koufax. And again, that's nothing to Kershaw, but I just feel Koufax is the better player. So I just want to comment on that before you get you out of here. So again, Per usual, if you don't already, please subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, leave us a review, a rating. Follow us on Twitter at Pot of Fame, and we will be back with a regular podcast. We'll be talking football next Monday. Um, 
So our normal format next Monday. So stay tuned for that. Enjoy your week. And we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. And the world's gonna know your name